my name is uh, David Harris from Manitou. Um, today I have uh, Eric Hess with me. Um, Eric and I go uh, way back, so, so far back in fact that he insulted me by calling me old, um, which is not the right way to start a podcast when I have all the questions. So Eric, um, why don't you uh, introduce yourself? Um, and look, I think go back because you have a very, very interesting career, right? I've known you for a long time. You've, you've morphed yourself um, done some really innovative things. And, um, you know, I think where your focus now is equally innovative to your past. So, uh, please. Well, thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I am the founder of Hess Legal Counsel and also the founder of Helical. Um, Helical is a cybersecurity platform and Hess Legal Counsel, uh, basically builds on my background in, uh, the financial markets, uh, in digital assets now, cybersecurity, technology, transactions. I'm sort of a, a lawyer with a very technical focus. I was general counsel and head of risk for uh, direct edge exchanges, which later became, as you know, something very close to you, um, this SIBO equities exchange, right? So Chicago Board of, of Options equities exchange. My background before that was heavily in the fintech space. Uh, I was uh, at um, Lehman Brothers for a number of years and their prime brokerage capital markets departments handling uh, basically the the automation of, of reg tech, you know, basically implementing regulations from a technology basis. I scared the hell out of uh, the developers because I'd walk into a room and I'd ask for flow charts. Uh, at first, everybody paid attention to me. It's, it's, it's a funny story. Started at Lehman and I started like making some changes, but I wanted to talk to developers. So I walked into the room and I started like just drilling into things. And months later, I found out that like business projects were getting dropped. Things were being deprioritized because everybody was terrified that the attorney had come to, to, to visit the developers. So the developers were saying, yeah, we're not touching that. We got to do this thing for Eric Hess. They thought it was like the, the craziest thing ever. So, uh, and then, you know, before that I was at Brass Technologies, which later became SunGuard, which later became FIS. You know, when you get, when you get to a certain place in this industry, you know, all of a sudden you got to like start telling your story by talking about companies that merge into other companies that merge into other companies because nobody recognizes the seed anymore. <laughs> no, no, look, that is right. I mean, I make the joke that I get 401k statements from companies that I have no idea <laughs> why they're sending me 401ks. And, you know, it's because they gobbled up somebody that I worked for, you know, 20 years ago. So Eric, tell me about what you're working on now. Like what's your practice about now? So uh, right now, my practice is basically divided into uh, digital asset exchanges, as well as, um, you know, financial technologies and even more traditional broker dealer investment advisory work. I'm increasingly focused on digital assets, both as with clients who just focus exclusively on that, as well as clients who are now starting to grapple with how to incorporate you know, digital assets, Bitcoin, the like, into their existing businesses and existing infrastructure. I have a lot of questions about that digital movement, but let's let's keep it with the more traditional world right now. So, with your traditional, you know, broker dealer, investment advisor clients, you know, what are they stressing about? Like, what are they bothering you about? Bothering is not the right word, but coming to you and, you know, asking you questions about? Well, you know, one of the things I'm seeing is there's a lot of uh, foreign interests looking to kind of engage with the U.S. market, meaning foreign broker dealers, you know, foreign 
investors investing in U.S. broker dealers or advisors sounds trite, but the increasing globalization of the world. And so these players come to the U.S. market. They need guidance. Uh, they need set up compliant infrastructure and the like. And uh, that's where I'm stepping in uh, a lot. And then, you know, on my clients who are already positioned in the U.S., they're often positioned in more established companies where they leverage my market data background, my regulatory background, my contractual background, and my cybersecurity background. So like now I'll handle um, their tech people directly, you know, because I can talk to cybersecurity. I can dig into a penetration test. So I've, I've sort of taken on, I guess, more unique role as well as vendor risk management. Yeah. Oh, that's a lot. So, and then on the digital asset side, uh, what's going on in that space? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's such an interesting time for digital assets in the U.S. just because there's a lot of uncertainty still with regulation. And a lot of companies are endeavoring to sort of figure out how they can exist in, in such an uncertain, in an uncertain place. And certain actions like even BitMEX, which I think, you know, address much more problematic conduct, but it raises questions as how much can I actually do if I have any exposure at all to the U.S.? Like I can say I don't take U.S. customers. Oh, I can refuse U.S. customers. But if somehow a U.S. customer finds a way to engage in my platform, what does that mean? And a lot of these systems still want to keep an eye on being compliant with U.S. laws, even if they're not specifically addressing the U.S. customers, because everybody anticipates that there'll be a gradual loosening up. And they want to be positioned. They don't want to have to be backtracking. And also, obviously, AML and, and, and FATF, you know, largely an American institution at this point, at least from its origin, it's a big concern for a lot of these companies, you know, making sure that they have all their AML processes, because obviously the Justice Department, wherever you are, is going to be ruthless if you're not complying with, with FATF. And again, you have to think about the CFTC, the SEC, you know, the OCC, you know, you have to worry about MSBs, you know, money services, businesses at the state levels. There's so many different issues that are raised. Uh, never mind the speed with which the space is moving and the new markets and you hear new terms all the time. I mean, now like DeFi is like the hottest thing and, you know, you scratch your head and it's like, oh, what derivation of a coin is that? And we get it, but what's different, what's not? Because, you know, oftentimes it's like new words, but you boil it down and they're similar concepts, at least from a regulatory perspective. Yeah, I shouldn't actually joke about this, but when I was at LSEG, I was purposefully coming up with uh, acronyms that I just made up and I was <laughs> trying to see whether or not I could get widespread adoption of words that I was making up. Um, did it work? Got, yeah, it actually did, strangely enough. So these new guys, right, are you seeing that they're homegrown in the U.S.? Do you see them, you know, coming in from uh, overseas? Where is this bubbling from? It's a combination, obviously. Um, some of it's homegrown in the U.S., particularly as it relates to the tech stack or supporting technologies. As you start to sort of delve into the the more regulated or potentially regulated component you're you're looking at offshore. Asia is certainly a very hot market for you know basically cryptocurrency now, and it's I think for a lot of participants it's a more logical place to start. Like Singapore is a very friendly jurisdiction. You don't have all the confusion that you have in the U.S. And I get that the U.S. regulators are trying to work their way through it, but there's so many like. Um, 
you know, this is okay, but this is not okay. This is okay. This is not okay. Or maybe okay, you know, and, and so with Singapore, you don't really get that as much, but it's not a light regulatory system. They just focus on, you know, some of the core components and there's much more certainty. There's other jurisdictions that are obviously favorable. I love personally, I love Bermuda, although that hasn't really taken off. I had a client uh, last year or so that, uh, you know, applied for digital asset business license. So I got very familiar with the regulatory framework there. And I have to say, I wrote an article on it. In my view, it is the best framework for regulation, at least from a prescriptive, you know, you have to believe in the prescriptive regulation is the best framework in the world, as opposed to proscriptive, which is more principles based, you know, Bermuda goes through a lot of depth. They've done, you know, like I say in my article, it's like, if you're thinking about developing an exchange in the U S and you want to self-regulate, look at Bermuda. I mean, they spell it all out for you, you know, and obviously you, you make sure you get a chief security officer or somebody knows security, but the thought that they put into it, um, it's amazing. And, you know, you even have jurisdictions like Wyoming, that's even like clip pages from Bermuda and adopting their own regulation. So it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, we were, I was at a, a digital conference in Bermuda about two years ago and um, the level of support and thought that went into their regulatory structure um, was really incredible. Like they built it correctly from the beginning. So let me ask in terms of your uh, customers, right? Are you seeing a theme in terms of things that you wish they were not doing <laughs> at the outset, right? Like if you, if I were coming to you and I was already thinking about my business, what would be the first couple steps that you would advise me on? Um, well, I have to say that my current customers, not necessarily some of my or current clients, not necessarily my past clients, and there may be a connection to why they're my past clients. The clients that I enjoy working the most with are those that recognize that being positioned from a regulatory perspective is, makes good business sense. You don't have to necessarily over-anticipate, but you need to contemplate that, hey, this is a highly regulated space. In terms of security, you've got to address security thoughtfully. You've got to address the regulatory structure thoughtfully. You got to think about what you're permitted to trade in, what you're not permitted to trade. And, and you need to draw some lines, even when there's some money on the other end of drawing those lines. Like you can't take all comers. You can't say, I have to succeed no matter what. And my current client base that are sort of getting in that startup mode recognize that. And I'm grateful that they recognize that. So it's, it makes it a lot easier. It also makes for a better relationship for me to have with my clients. I think some of my past clients, and again, I don't, I, I hope nobody's taking offense, but, but, you know, some of them would take the approach of just like, oh my God, this is so burdensome. This is, you know, we don't have time for this, or, you know, we'll do enough, or we'll get to that later. And, and it just doesn't always work that way. You have to have a thoughtful approach. And, and sometimes when you say, we'll do it later, you leave footprints high up on the sandbar that can be traced later. So in the rearview mirror, it's not just one footstep at a time that's being traced. It's a series of actions. It's a culture and, and a regulator coming in won't like that. And it also exposes you to your investors. I mean, let's face it, you know, the investors want to see a, a franchise that's going to sustain itself. And if they have regulatory risk, well, then, then that's not a franchise that's going to sustain itself. So I think that's, you know, it's important that businesses, particularly going into digital asset market space or servicing clients, keep this in mind at the outset, or at least be cognizant that they can't do everything if they don't have the controls and the security to do to do everything. 
Yeah, and look, because I run into that in the in the space where we're focused on around privacy, because you know, we're coming up against companies that you know are launching new businesses, new business models, and you know they have an opportunity to deal with privacy and consumer data correctly at the inception. Because as you say, you know if you don't deal with it properly from the beginning, you don't take the time to have the right structure in place, right? You leave those footprints in the sand, right? And those footprints in the sand, as you know, right? Whenever a regulator or a litigator comes walking, like you wanna show them a pristine beach, right? You don't wanna show them a beach with lots and lots of footprints because inevitably if you look hard enough, right? You're almost always gonna find something that's done, been done wrong, right? right. I mean, yeah, it's, just a, it's just the way it is. I mean, you and I both been regulators, right? We know that if you leave enough there, if a regulator or a litigant wants to you know, make hay, they're going to be able to do it, right? So right. I, I think your advice to your clients, you know, is very similar to the advice we give to people around data privacy, et cetera. And, so and, I wanted to ask yeah. you. And there's one other, one other point I'll, 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 yeah. I'll add on to that because it's, it's relevant is I see this in, in, I've seen this throughout my career. Uh, and the, the smarter people that you deal with who are less regulatory focused, the more you see this with, which is smart people, very smart, that are particularly maybe technical or, or in non-legal ways, they'll look at a regulation and they'll interpret it according to their own understanding of what the words mean, without recognizing that in regulation, everything's a term of art. And it's not just simply saying, like, I solicited clients means that I didn't like call them up and say, be a client of mine, for example. Right. And so right. they'll take sort of a plain language, but highly intelligent rationalization that they're complying with it. And they, they fail to grasp the, the, the larger significance of the body and the precedent that underlies it. So the same would be true for any privacy law. Like people read the words, they don't necessarily get counseled. They develop their own, um, you know, they get- Interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. And they start to interpret and they say, oh, I, or, or, or like they hear something that somebody isn't doing and they're like, oh, okay, that means I can't do it. It's just like some, they, they, people can get very myopic. Listen, nobody loves, nobody's like juiced about like complying with regulation. Nobody's like, woohoo, unless they think that there's clients on the other end of it who are going to value it, right? One of the challenges that I think some startups have is they believe what they want to believe and they, they get blindsided and they don't focus on the compliant aspects early enough. Uh, again, I can say that's not the case with my current clients. But, you know, I see it a lot. Oftentimes when I talk to potential clients who, who kind of like tell me the bounds of how they want to engage me, and it doesn't include necessarily actions that are legit. Like in 2017, I had people explaining to me why their ICO was not a security. And I'm like, guys, what you're saying doesn't even line up with the law. It's like, and I, I started doing something very funny with these clients. I'd say, you know, they'd say the Howey test and they'd give their own interpretation of the Howey test. And I said, you know, like I said, I actually use a different test these days. And the clients would be like, I can't tell any conversations I had like this. Clients would say, well, what's that test? And I said, I use the duck test. And they're like, the duck test? Yeah, I can what's imagine. The, what's the duck test? And I'm like, well, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Your yeah. duck looks like a security. <laughs> you know? yeah, no, I never got funny. any clients where I use that line. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, you don't want to go. You don't want to connect those two dots, right? But, and look, as you know, right? Having the regulators come in and say, you're quacking like a duck, 
you're walking like a duck, you look like a duck, and we think you're a duck, even if the regulators are wrong, right? You're still going to have a very difficult time as a new business managing that risk, right? So again, it comes back to, I think what you said before, right? It's the foundational piece, right? To come in and um, have an open mind because I agree with you totally, right? That, that innovators have in their brain the world that they believe has to exist, right? It's that simple, right? I don't logically, this has to be the way. And um, logic does not necessarily relate to law, right? <laughs> um, you know, period, full stop. So well, well, I think the I think the secret amulet when you're talking to a technical person who doesn't get the law or or is insistent on their own interpretation, and I found this has been the the, the magic wand. I simply say, you're thinking very logically, but the law isn't necessarily logical. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly correct, right? That that is totally correct. So look, I wanted to get to because we reconnected because you sent me an article which I thought was really cool, right? That, that you have posted on hesslegalcouncil.com, right? About encryption. I find it fascinating, like how you have um, walked that edge between being an attorney and being a technically minded person. Um, tell me about the article. So <clears throat> I've been fascinated with this concept of homomorphic encryption for some time. But basically when you think of encryption today, you have encryption in transit, and you have encryption at rest. And people often don't think what that means. They say, oh, it's encrypted. But their, their view of encryption is shaped by what's available. Encryption as rest means your data is encrypted, right? So if somebody tries to get that data, they have to decrypt the data. They don't have the key, they can't decrypt it. Encryption in transit means a channel typically is encrypted. In certain cases, you have packets that are encrypted. In either case, it is a fluid, it is a transport concept of, of encryption. I send an email, it's an encrypted channel. If somebody figures out how to decrypt the channel, they can get all your email. If I encrypt every single packet, they figure out how to decrypt a particular packet, they can, they can decrypt that packet. Um, what is missing and, and is sort of the Excalibur of encryption is processing, right? So, you know, if you, for example, and I'll, I'll use the CAT, the Consolidated Audit Trail, as an example, an enormous amount of highly sensitive data about trading patterns. And basically, it's compiled in a central place and it's distributed to all the regulators so they can do their own surveillance. Very, very laudable goals of doing sort of a consolidated review of all the trading in the marketplace. But each and every single regulator has to decrypt that data upon receiving it to perform processing on it. And that processing itself is not encrypted, which means that it is vulnerable to being hacked. Like somebody could just hack into that process or, you know, let's go a little step further. Now, you know, you may have encrypted it at rest in the central CAT system storage. You may have, you may, you may have encrypted the channel. You may have some rules relating to what the other side has to do with it, but you're still dependent on each and every single regulator's own ability to encrypt at, at rest, you're relying also like when they have the data available and they're processing that data, you know, those processes, those machines, the applications are using could have vulnerabilities and they could be being hacked. 
and those processes aren't encrypted. So, and you think about this, this isn't just a CAD issue. This is any kind of big data processing issue. In the CAD's case, they are blazing ahead despite this security issue because they feel that the data feel that the, the greater good is more or they don't recognize the risks that each regulator faces when decrypting it. But it, it, we will not judge. We will not judge. We will not position. judge. I'll, I'll get in trouble. Listen, I'm, I'm a small law firm, so I can take risks that other ones can't. And I say, yeah, I, you know, I can get some hate mail on CAD. It's all good. Um, yeah. But, um, but you know, and you also, it, it broadens out to any kind of quantitative brokerage or any kind of big data uh, business that wants to enlist the aid or use third parties to assist it in processing, you know, it can provide that data, it can encrypt it, but they can't encrypt it in processing. So the reason why we don't have encryption in processing, um, there's different things that we can do. There are systems where we can do rudimentary encryption and processing. Like, you know, we could have a few people and everybody's given a task and nobody knows what the other one's doing. And then somebody has to sort of assimilate it all. You know, it's basically assigning different tasks and not telling people what all those tasks are rolling up into. But that's, that can be cumbersome and it's kind of limited if it's essentially a manual process. The way that you uh, achieve that um, is through, um, you know, you can achieve that is through homomorphic encryption. Uh, but homomorphic encryption requires an enormous amount of processing power. Now, I won't get into quoting numbers and all because I think it's just uh, it's unnecessary for this podcast. You can also go look at the article. But but the, the the long and short of it is is that homomorphic encryption it's like you're given a box and there are ports into the box and you have gloves that reach into the box. And for everybody who's going to be receiving the data, they get something to assemble, um, but they can't see what what it is they're actually assembling. They can't do anything with it. All they can do is assemble it. So, and, and so you're limited to the processing task for which you require it. So for example, let's take the cat. Every regulator does not need a whole dump of all the data available across that the cat has assimilated. It doesn't need it. The fact of the matter is most of the data it actually doesn't need. If it's not compliant, if it raises a red flag, they need the data, but they're getting all the data. They're getting all of it compliant and non-compliant. So all the people, all the firms, all the activity of the company, of the, of the broker dealers, financial participants that is compliant, it's being exposed during processing, but it doesn't have to be, right? Why? Because all the regulators care about, they have an algorithm and either something throws a red flag that requires further investigation. Maybe they need to confirm that certain elements are in place but other than if you can define specifically what it is that they, what's the end result? What are they doing with it? What is the objective in terms of what they're creating? Then you can basically encrypt all other components of that activity and just give the, the regulators what they need, no more. So what, the, what do they need? They need red flags and they need confirmation. They need almost like a binary. Yes, no. Did it meet all the standards? Yes, no. That's, that's how they get all their little technical violations that they yeah. Torment people with, right? Then there's the, the more fundamental, like, you know, red flags in terms of, you know, fraud or, you know, spoofing, layering, all that activity. And that's the kind of data that if it's triggered, then they could collect that data. This way they wouldn't expose more. The problem is, of course, is that it requires tons of computing resources, um, but we're getting there. We're getting to a place where it's commercially viable. I would argue that the cat should be like the first grounds for doing it just because the sheer volume and the sensitivity of the information that's going to be 
transmitted to all the different regulators on the entire US market. If I understand what you're saying, is it almost like asking the data a question and you don't actually need to know what the underlying data is, right? So, you know, you kind of like your question about it being binary. So it would be like, hey, is, you know, is Eric over 21, right? And the answer comes back, yes or no. But you don't need all of the underlying data to be decrypted to get you that answer. Right. Or you could have an algorithm that runs through the processes on the data. It could be a series of binary questions. And obviously, you know, devising that algorithm could have some complexity. And of course, the other thing is, is that with homomorphic encryption, you want to make sure that the algorithm that you're using to process the data is itself being audited, right? <laughs> because if that thing suddenly is not, everybody's like, oh yeah, yeah, it's a homomorphic encryption. We don't know what it does, but it does it. That's not going to yeah. fly, right? So the auditability yeah. of those processes in the interest of keeping that big data safe, uh, it's important that it not be unnecessarily exposed, but it's also important that what you're relying on now to do the processing, you know, the algorithms that they themselves are auditable. And I think that's yeah. obviously a huge area, um, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. Cause I had the pleasure in a past life of people telling me about uh, neural nets and how neural nets were going to, you know, artificial intelligence was going to help in regulatory decision-making, right? And then, you know, and that sounds really awesome, right? You know, I'm gonna look at vast amounts of data and I am going to make a decision, right? Based upon this thing. And then you ask them, well, how does that thing work? Like, how do you, how do you know that that neural net is actually doing what, you know, you would want it to do? And the answer is, well, we don't. Like, we don't understand how the decision's made. Well, you know, telling a regulator, right, or anybody that, you know, you've made a decision, but you don't really understand it, right, that um, is a hard one. Yeah, the right? processing itself has to be auditable. And that, I think, is as important as, you know, ensuring that you've obviously got the right algorithms, the ability to audit and and validate it periodically is, is critical. Um, you know, the neural net's interesting because, you know, for homomorphic encryption, uh, the neural net's also very important. So people talk about machine learning, right? I hate buzzwords, right? So, you know, when, when ICOs came out, people would just start throwing all these words to me. And, and like, at first I was just sort of like in shock. And then I started like, breaking it down. I'm like, okay, what is ICO? It's a token. It's an instrument and translating it into terms that a regulator would look at. And, and just because you assign a new word to something doesn't mean it sort of exists in its own right now that's unclassified. But when it comes to like AI or machine learning, um, you know, artificial intelligence needs to be trained. And it takes a lot of work to train artificial intelligence correctly. It sounds great. Self-learning sounds wonderful. But as a practical application, it sounds more wonderful than it actually is. It has its inherent limitations, meaning AI has to be trained and it has to be, and that training is, is a rigorous process. And in some cases, it just may not make sense. It may not be economically feasible because there's too much, it's too expensive, it's too time consuming. It's just the wrong application. So people love to use AI. AI just means like the computer makes one decision for you or two decisions. Woohoo, I got AI, right? It's a tree, it's a decision tree, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but, but when you talk about machine learning and those sort of those linked questions, like how one yes, no, then if no, this, if this, that, right? That whole tree of decision-making that underpins AI 
training that appropriately can be extremely, extremely challenging. And you need tons of data, lots of data. Now, homomorphic. So what would happen if these, you know, like JP Morgan and Bank of America wanted to sort of collaborate to ensure that they had more data that they could leverage across all their user base, right? You know, take all the bulge bracket firms. They're not going to share information with one another. That's never going to happen. So they're never going to be able to benefit necessarily. And I'm sure, you know, some people would say, well, you could exclude this field, you could exclude that field, which itself becomes a bureaucratic nightmare and maybe never happens. But let's say that they want, let's say that there was a third party provider that developed an auditable homomorphic encrypted system where this data could be pumped in and none of the firms would be able to see the data, but be able to draw information for the purposes of their machine learning algorithms, um, you know, to, to feed the AI, to make their AI systems that they have today more robust, right? Instead of just being the Bank of America universe, which I'm sure is quite large, it could also be smaller universes where they're trying to get the aggregate of a larger universe. If you could somehow bring all these together, you would have a much richer, more functional AI, but you will never get there if it requires sharing the underlying data because of the lack of trust and competitive position and what's a confidentiality agreement worth anyway, if I'm dumping all my client information you know, to a competitor. Yeah, well, or you could just call the company Manitou, right? Or you could start a company called Manitou that essentially does that. I'm not going to plug it. Well, look, you know, I think on your podcast, we can talk about, because we actually don't use homomorphic encryption um, for a lot of the reasons you articulated, right? That it provides a lot of benefit, right? It allows people to uh, work with data without knowing the content of the data, which allows a lot of data sharing, which has great value. But, you know, the processing is slow, right? Because yes. of the compute power that you need to do it, right? So we have come up with other techniques that essentially get you to the same place without using homomorphic uh, encryption. Where does uh, homomorphic encryption play into the privacy space? Are you seeing anyone move in that direction? The homomorphic encryption, I would say, is still very much in, in, a, ver in a beta phase. Uh, IBM is sort of blazing the trails on this. Um, they published a paper about what they did with, I think, uh, mobile banking and data they were collecting for like lending and how homomorphic encryption worked. It's still being proven out. It's, you know, there are some applications where it's being utilized. It's not ready for widespread adoption. You know, to your point, there's, there's other technologies that can achieve a lot of it. And it's not necessarily the type of thing where, you know, it's always going to be practical to do it. But I think in certain cases, it becomes compelling. And, and the wonderful thing about writing about homomorphic encryption now, the article, everything I write about, everything we talk about only becomes more relevant over time, you know, particularly as, you know, you get concerned about sort of the quantum computing implications for hacking and security. We're going to be starting to live in a world where, you know, more computing power is going to be required to process for security reasons. And that also provide new opportunities, but it also provide a lot of new risks, uh, elements that have scale and particularly state-supported, you know, criminal elements uh, mm -hmm. to attack those systems. Good point. Good point. Well, look, I've taken a lot of your time and we're going to, and as you were speaking and I was thinking about your podcast, I realized that I'm going to invite uh, our chief technology officer on your podcast, 
right? And I'm just going to literally make the introduction and then I'm going to just sit and let you two speak. Um, well, I hope I be, get your input too. Maybe we'll do a, a double. We'll do a double. I'll surprise you. I'll have some guests that I will uh, pull into your podcast. <laughs> Come so, on down, so, right? Yeah. yeah, I know. Right? Hold on. Let me phone a friend. Um, so, so look, Eric, I really appreciate the time uh, that you've given us. I know you and I are going to be working together in the future. So um, we'll wrap this uh, podcast up right now. Um, again, this is uh, David Harris from Manitou. Uh, we're focused on privacy uh, for the enterprise, uh, enabling both transparency and control to consumers. Thank you. All right. Thanks all. And you can find uh, my podcast, including David's on the encryptedeconomy.com, which is not up at the time I'm saying this, but will be by the time you're seeing this. <laughs>